So on January 27, 1855, Charles Spurgeon said these words in the introduction of his sermon, and I would like to copy him as I begin this sermon. He said this, Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief, and in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul So calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I invite you this morning. And the subject that Spurgeon invited his church to that morning is what our sermon is about today, God's immutability. That's the undomesticated attribute of God that we're going to be looking at today. But what is immutability? What do we mean when we say that God is immutable? Well, notice the first two letters of the word, immutable. Recall what we saw earlier in this series. Whenever a word has the prefix I am or I in, it usually means that it negates or cancels the rest of the word. For instance, God is immortal, meaning he is not mortal. He is not like us. God is incomprehensible, meaning that God cannot be fully and completely comprehended. God is infinite, which means he is not finite. So when we say that God is immutable, we mean that God is not mutable, that he does not undergo mutations. He is not changeable in any way. God's immutability simply means he cannot change. He doesn't ever change because he cannot change. And that attribute of God just might comfort your heart so much today that what Charles Spurgeon said might become true of you. You shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. And that's what I want for you, and that's what I want for myself today, that we leave church, that we leave our pews as if we came from a pew of rest, refreshed and invigorated. So maybe we should put signs on the back of the pews that say, this is a pew of rest. Have a seat, hear the gospel, and then rise refreshed and invigorated. That's what we want to happen every week here at Grace. That you have a seat, that you rest as you hear good news about Jesus, and thirdly, that you rise refreshed and invigorated. And I expect that to happen today because we will be discussing God's immutability. And so here's our big idea, which is for all of you and me. Fickle Christian You can trust the faithful God who never changes. God's immutability means that God will not and he cannot change in any way whatsoever. But we're not like that, are we? We're fickle. We change all the time. One minute we love Jesus and obey him. The next minute we love sin and obey it. 
We make promises to God like, I'll never do that sin again. I promise. And then we go and we do that sin. But God remains steadfast, unmoved, unchanging, immutable. Paul Smalley says, too many Christians have a view of God's love like a girl picking petals off a daisy saying, he loves me, he loves me not. If God's love did change with our conduct and circumstances, then God would be riding a gut-wrenching roller coaster of love. Nothing could be farther from the truth. If we are in Christ, then God's love for us is unchanging. This is one facet of the sparkling diamond we call God's immutability, which means God cannot change. I love God's immutability. My life hinges on this doctrine. It's my hope. And I hope today, after this sermon, you will love God's immutability and it will become a fave of yours as well. So here are a few verses that highlight God's immutability. If you turn quickly, you're welcome to join me. But we're just going to read through all of these verses today. They'll be on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Micah 3, 6 through 7. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And then James 1, 16 and 17. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so God's immutability is a comforting doctrine because it reminds us that God's character, who he is, remains fixed. He is actually incapable of changing in any way, but not so with us, right? As Michelle Winger, our recently retired children's director, has always said since I've known her, she's always said, all I know is change. Can't tell you how many times that came up in a staff meeting. She said, all I know is change. So she just kind of rolls with the punches because that's all she knows. But God says, all I know is unchange. He cannot change. He is unchangeable in his essence, his nature, his perfections. He is who he is for eternity. God will not be one day today and another way tomorrow and another day the next day. And get this, and this is so wonderful because it's so not like us. God doesn't have moods. Aren't you glad? God doesn't have moods. He's never in a bad mood like we are. And he doesn't have bad days where he really needs a third cup of coffee just to get out the door. He never needs to update his own software. He is unchanging. He is who he is. He simply is. So God cannot be made to be any way that he is not in and of himself already. Let me say that again. God cannot be made to be any way that he is not in and of himself already, which means you can't make God anything that he is not. 
Puritan Stephen Charnock, born in 1628, died in 1680, is very helpful here. In his book on the attributes of God, he wrote 43 pages on God's immutability. Now think about that. 43 pages on these four words, God does not change. Here's a sample. God is without any new nature, new thought, new will, new purpose, or new place. God is a necessary being. He is necessarily what he is and therefore is unchangeably what he is. What comfort would it be to pray to a God that, like a chameleon, changed colors every day, every moment? So God never has new thoughts. Think about that. How many thoughts went through your head as we were singing worship songs earlier? If you're like me, probably a lot. God never has a new thought. He never has a new will. He never has a new purpose. God is who he has always been, and he will never change in any way. And that comforts us because we are not praying to a God who is like a chameleon, always changing his colors. He remains steadfast, unchanging, unmoved. And this is why God is often called a rock in the scriptures That's why the Psalms refer to God as a rock over 20 times. Because the authors of God's word are looking to something in creation to give us an idea of what God's immutability looks like, even though that picture ultimately falls short. So we read verses like Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. So two times in one verse, David calls Yahweh his rock. But then he comes back to it again 30 verses later in Psalm 18, 31. For who is God but Yahweh? And who is a rock except our God? And then David does the same thing again in Psalm 62, verse 2. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And then four verses later, he does it again. He, is my, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. So he calls Yahweh his rock in verse 2, and then he does it again in verse 6. But then in verse 7, he adds another word, mighty. God is a mighty rock. But why rocks, David? Because the imagery of rocks portray God's immutability. It portrays the permanence of who God is. Notice that David did not call Yahweh his wet paper bag. Right? Why not? Because a wet paper bag is not stable, it's not solid, it's not trustworthy. But a rock is a picture of stability and permanence and unchange. As Matthew Barrett says, in but a small way, that rock is like God. He does not change. Come what may, this God remains the same. He is firm and secure, always there, never fluctuating, incapable of defeat, and forever steadfast as a fortress to those in trouble. That's your Savior, fickle Christian. Right there are seven things about Jesus that you need to rub into your pores or stuff into every nook and cranny of your heart or put it on a t-shirt 
or get it tattooed on your forearm. He does not change. One. Two, he remains the same. Three, he is firm and secure. Four, he is always there. Five, he never fluctuates. Six, he is incapable of defeat. And seven, he is forever steadfast as your fortress. And if you meditate on those uh, truths about Jesus, then you will have peace in the midst of whatever trouble comes your way. The doctrine of God's immutability is whispering to you today. Fickle Christian, you can trust the faithful God who never changes. The doctrine of God's immutability means that Jesus is faithful when you are fickle. He's faithful when you walk away after other lovers pursuing your darling sins and your beloved idols. That's Christianity. That's the Bible from cover to cover. That's Genesis to Revelation. The Bible is one long story of God's people being fickle and God being faithful to his fickle people. In fact, your life and my life has been one long story of all of us being fickle and chasing after other lovers and God himself being faithful to us, unchanging steadfast. So you might want to begin to fall in love with the doctrine of God's immutability. As James Dolezal says, the doctrine of God's immutability should be precious to you and constantly in your heart and on your mind, for it is in this reality of the unchanging God that our hope is grounded and rooted. Listen, no matter how much you fail, God will not change his love for you. He loves you with the same love that he loves his son Jesus, and that is an eternal love. And the truth of God's unchanging love should cause you to rest as you sit in that pew right now, to just be able to say, you know what, I am so fickle, but he's so faithful, so, okay. But if you know your Bible very well, you might know that there are some verses that seem to imply that God does change or that he changes his mind. So what are we going to do about those verses? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's read a few examples and then I'm going to explain what they mean. In the time of Noah, we read in Genesis 6, 5 through 7, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then fast forward to when Saul was anointed king over Israel, we read in 1 Samuel 15, verses 10 and 11, The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. 1 Samuel 15, 35, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, On the surface, it seems like God is actually the fickle one here, 
right? But we have to understand that it is our fickleness, it is our sin, our rebellion, which leads God to quote-unquote change his mind or regret or be sorry. It is only after the actions, only after the sin, only after the rebellion of humanity in Genesis 6 and Saul in 1 Samuel 15, it is only then that God expresses his quote-unquote regret. R.C. Sproul is very helpful here. He's always helpful when there's a theological conundrum. That's just so you know. R.C. says this, The biblical narratives in which God appears to repent or change his mind are almost always narratives that deal with his threats of judgment and punishment. These threats are then followed by the repentance of the people or by the intercessory petitions of their leaders. God is not talked into changing his mind. Out of his gracious heart, he only does what he has promised to do all along, not punish sinners who repent and turn from their evil ways. He chooses not to do what he has every right to do. The point of these narratives is to encourage us to pray. We are to make intercession. When we repent, then God removes the threat of punishment. The question is, who is ultimately repenting here? God never repents in the sense that he turns away from sin or from error. God is not a man. He does not ultimately or literally have arms or legs. He does not repent as men repent. He listens to our prayers, but is never corrected by them. He changes not, neither in the perfection of his being nor in the perfection of his thoughts. So when the Bible speaks like this and uses these phrases like God was sorry, he regretted, he changed his mind, it's God using human language to communicate with us because we're not that smart. He is holy, he is different, set apart, he is infinite. And he needs to come down to our level to communicate with us because we're a little slow. God condescends to us. He comes down to our level in his communication with us so that we might understand who he is and so that we might understand his ways. As we saw several sermons ago, John Calvin said that when God talks to us, he uses baby talk. God has to speak baby talk to us, finite creatures, precisely because he is so infinite so incomprehensible, so holy, so other, so different, so far beyond us. He is so other that he has to stoop down to us. And when he speaks to us in his word, it's like a mother speaking baby talk to her three-month-old. And that's what's happening here when we read passages that seem to imply that God regrets or is sorry or changes his mind. When we read these verses and these phrases, they are meant to communicate to us God's profound displeasure at sin. The context is God's reaction against sin and rebellion. The sins and rebellion in the time of Noah and the sins and rebellion in the, of uh, Saul. So God uses a phrase in his word like, be sorry, regret to communicate to us his displeasure at sin and rebellion. It doesn't mean that something in God has changed. 
what has happened is that there's some change in something that God created, namely sin and rebellion. His creatures sin. They changed. They did something. And so God expresses his disappointment and displeasure in words and phrases and ideas that we can grasp with our finite minds. Please understand this. When we sin and when we rebel against God, when any person sins and rebels against God, whether they're a Christian or not, it does not make God increase somehow in his hatred of sin. God's intrinsic, holy, white-hot, burning hatred of and opposition to sin is not made hotter by our sin. So God is not at 75% hatred of sin, and then you go and sin on Tuesday afternoon, and then you bump him up another 10%. No, God doesn't change. God doesn't experience emotional change. That's God's impassibility. We'll talk about that next week. He is boundlessly opposed to sin. And when we see God respond to sin with people in the Bible, like in the time of Noah and King Saul, what happens is that we are seeing a demonstration of his holy opposition to sin that is manifested against sinners in time and in space. So, God did not move from 75% hatred of sin to 85% hatred of sin when King Saul sinned because then it would be like King Saul's sin somehow added to God's virtue of hating sin. Okay? If it's a virtue for God to hate sin, it's not like when we sin, we add to his virtue because then now he's dependent on us, isn't he? Are we to think that because God hates sin, then Saul's sin somehow made God hate sin more? No, we don't add anything to God, not even his hatred of sin. So God's anger, or his love for that matter, doesn't change based on what we do. Let me say that again. God's anger or his love, for that matter, does not change based on what we do. What changes is the demonstration of God's hatred of sin in the created order, in time and space as we know it. God does not change, but the way he demonstrates his hatred for sin does change in the world that we know. Saul experienced the demonstration of God's hatred of sin in real time. There was a change in Saul's world, not in God. So don't think that because there is a change in the created order, then there must be somehow a corresponding change in God himself. As if now Saul has rebelled and sinned, so now God is suddenly like, ah, now I'm angry at you, Saul. Think about this. Could we ever know exactly how God feels? And I hate to use that word. Could we ever know exactly how God feels when we sin? Could we ever really grasp what it means that mankind has sinned against the holy God? We are finite. How could we ever really understand what takes place when human beings rebel against a good, loving, merciful, gracious, and holy God? We can't. And we won't ever really and truly be able to understand that and grasp that. Why? You may not know this, but because we are not God. Duh, right? We will never understand because we are not God. I was confronted with Psalm 
50, verse 21 this morning. God reminded me that I'm not like him. Psalm 50, verse 21 says, So you thought I was like you? This is kind of how I picture God leaning forward and saying, Let me get this straight. You thought I was like you because I did not respond the way you thought I should respond? Okay. Read it, Psalm 50, verse 21. And so to give us a glimpse, see, we tend to make God, he's got to do what we do. He's got to think like we think. And he's saying, I'm not like you at all. And so to give us a glimpse, to give us an idea of what he is like, God uses a concept, he uses phrases like regret, repent, be sorry, change his mind in his word to express to us his extreme and eternal displeasure at human sin and rebellion. He comes down to our level to communicate his attributes to us. He uses baby talk. He's saying gugugaka to us. So understand this. When, God, when the Bible speaks of God changing in some way, it's an anthropopathic way of speaking. What does that mean? Well, I'll explain it so you can impress your friends with it, okay? Anthropopathic. Anthropopathisms attribute human emotions such as grief or regret to God. They're saying, they're saying it's kind of like this. This is what we experience as humans, and it's kind of like that. They attribute human emotions to God. They don't directly describe his eternal character or attributes. Rather, they indicate a change in humanity's relationship with God. So anthropopathic language employs human emotions to describe God. But the Bible also attributes to God certain body parts, doesn't it? It says God has eyes and ears and a nose and feet and hands and arms. But the Bible does so and it describes God this way on the assumption that we know that God does not literally have a nose and hands and feet. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus didn't have a human body like ours, because he does, he did, and he does, okay? I'm not saying, but the Bible, what I'm talking about is like the e- eternal essence and nature of God. He is not like a man. He's not made up of parts, as we talked about uh, before. He doesn't literally have a nose, hands, and feet, These are metaphors and analogies and figures of speech. They are simply ways of helping us to understand God so that we might think rightly about him. So when scripture says that God has eyes or hands or ears, you are to understand that this is an analogy. The authors of scripture are using anthropomorphic language. So there's another word to impress your friends. Anthropomorphic language is language that uses human characteristics to metaphorically convey something true of God. So when scripture says that God has ears, it doesn't expect us to think that God really has ears. It's telling us that God listens to us. He hears our prayers. When scripture says that God has eyes, it doesn't mean that God literally has physical eyes, but that he sees us. When it says that he has arms, the everlasting arms, it wants us to know that he protects us and he holds us. Now again, we're not talking about Jesus himself in the incarnation because he did have a body and he does have a glorified body now. But when we talk about God, 
He doesn't have these things. This is anthropomorphic language, trying to teach us what God is like using phrases and concepts and body parts that we understand. Matthew Barrett says, when we read that God repents or regrets, we wonder if God has changed his mind or made a mistake. Why then is this figurative language used? When God says he regrets that he made Saul king, for example, the author is grasping for the strongest word in our human experience to convey that the eternal, immutable, and impassable Lord now stands in judgment over Saul for his treason and God's plan all along to raise up a king after his own heart is now at hand. Rather than witnessing and changing God, and an emotional one at that, We're witnessing the effects of God's will on his creatures. It's clear there is no change in God when Saul tries to beg his way back, as if he can manipulate God like the passable gods of the nations. Samuel corrects Saul's doctrine of God, and perhaps ours too. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So in Genesis 6... With humanity, in 1 Samuel 15 here with Saul, God did not literally repent for creating humanity or making Saul king. If he did, then that would imply that God did not know or foresee what would happen after he created the world or after he anointed Saul as king. That's not the God of the Bible. God knows everything. He is omniscient. So when scripture uses language describing God as changing or repenting, being sorry, etc., it is simply God making an accommodation to our limited human language and understanding. It's baby talk. It's God saying goo goo gaga so that we can be like, oh, okay. So all of this means fickle Christian you can trust the faithful God who never changes. And because God never changes, you are forever united to Christ, super glued. Like like parents, you know, sometimes your kids are like, can you take apart these two Lego pieces? And sometimes no matter what you do, you can't get them apart. You can use your teeth, you can use a knife, whatever. Some Lego pieces are one forever. That's how you are in Christ because God is immutable. You cannot be separated from Jesus whatsoever. And because God never changes, that means that Jesus cannot remember your sin. And because God never changes, you are safe and secure in his love even though you still sin all the time. You can rest today because Jesus paid it all. Because he humbled himself and bore our sins on the cross so that we could stand in God's presence unashamed. Imagine that. Imagine you standing unashamed in God's presence. That may be hard for us to imagine. Like, that guy? Oh, that guy is standing on it. Yeah. If you're in Christ, you stand unashamed in God's presence. Because he took our blame paid the penalty for our sins on the cross so that we could forever sit under the smile of our Heavenly Father. The gospel declares to unfaithful sinners that we live, we remain in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of God and that never changes all because of Jesus, 
all because God is immutable. So if God never changes, then neither does his love for you. His love for you will never change no matter what you do. I mean, you can go sin all you want. It's not going to change. There'll be consequences in your life. I don't recommend it. But his love for you will never change. Does he discipline his children? Absolutely. But you can go do whatever you want, and it will not change God's love for you. It might really mess up your life, so I'm not recommending you try that. We change. He doesn't. We leave him. He never leaves us. He never leaves us or forsake us, even though we do that to him all the time. Our darling sins, our beloved idols that we're like, Jesus, I love you, worship you. Ah, we do that all the time. He never does that. The doctrine of God's immutability teaches us that God is committed to this relationship with us. He's in it for the long haul. He has no exit plan whatsoever. He keeps loving us even though we change in our love for him. Again, listen to how Malachi describes God in Malachi 3, 6, and 7. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So God is basically saying this, to paraphrase. If I wasn't immutable, then I would have wiped y'all out a long time ago. It's precisely because I am immutable that I don't destroy you. Because y'all have given me plenty of reasons to nuke you. But if you come back home, if you return to me, you will find that I'm still here. I haven't left, you have. And you will find all of me for all of you. All my grace, all my mercy, all my love, all for you. Old Testament scholar Ian Duguid nails the immutability of God on the head without even mentioning it. And this is, I think it's the most practical application of God's immutability. So we'll close with this. He says this, when Jesus Christ calls you to himself, he doesn't just say to you, I love you for now. Let's see how this works out as we go along. If you are holy enough and devout enough over the next 50 years or so, then maybe I'll take you to heaven when you die. No, when God calls you to himself, he legally binds himself to you in a covenant relationship permanently and unbreakably. The security of your salvation does not rest, therefore, on the strength of your vow to follow Jesus. Rather, it rests on his initial and irrevocable choice. God is not stuck with you forever as if you both had too much to drink in Las Vegas and made a bad decision while passing a drive through wedding chapel. I love that imagery. Let me read it again. God is not stuck with you forever as if you both had too much to drink in Las Vegas and made a bad decision while passing a drive through wedding chapel. God actually loves you, hard though that may be for us to grasp sometimes. He knows you inside and out with all your quirks and weaknesses, all your habitual sins and your heart idolatries, and yet he still loves you personally. The take-home theology 
of God's immutability. The street level application of God's immutability is that he has legally bound himself to you in a covenant relationship permanently and unbreakably. In other words, he's not just stuck with you. He's not looking at the father and say, the father and say, really? I gotta stay committed to this one? He's not stuck with you. He actually loves you. So rest in that today. And then rise and leave here refreshed and invigorated to love and to live for him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are not like us. We would have bailed a long time ago. We would have given up. We would have broken this thing off. We would have broken up with you. And yet you still love us. We have given you plenty of reasons to throw your hands in the air and say, that's it, it's over, I can't do this anymore. You have been remarkably patient with us, loving us even as we love our darling sins. And so it's your kindness to us this morning and your goodness that draws us to repentance, to turn from living for us and to turn back to you. Thank you for the promise from Malachi 3 that if we return to you, you are there. All we have to do is stop and turn around. So we thank you for your faithfulness to us because we have been remarkably fickle and yet you still love us. And we just want to say thank you. We want to worship you. And we want to live for you. Help us, we ask in your name. Amen.